Well, we, uh, we, we live in an age that a lot of authors, researchers, uh, folks would call a curated age. You know, what's a curator? Think about a traditional art curator, someone who works for an institution like a museum or an art house. They are choosing the different pieces of art that are on exhibit for people to see. In a sense, they're choosing what the institution wants to show people art is and the value of art that they have. Today, we have a similar way of living. We curate our lives in different ways. We can curate the news that we read, the books that we're interested in, the, the truths about this world that we uh, decide to, to place our, our hopes and our trusts in. We also curate our lives for others to see. I don't know if any of you remember pages like MySpace or Zanga. Did any of you guys have those? I had them. I'm really glad that you can't find them anymore. <laughs> you see, log on to a Zanga page and there would be music playing in the background. It was really distracting. But anyways, you curate yourself so people would know who you were. It's a big thing for me when I was in middle school and high school, but it certainly hasn't died. It's still here. We have Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. We have all these different ways, TikTok, Snapchat, it doesn't matter what it is. We have all these different ways of presenting ourselves to the world. We're curating our lives before the watching world. There's another example of this. I thought this one was pretty, pretty on point. In the mid-1970s, there was a, an experiment of researchers did something around the Halloween time. Actually, it was on Halloween. Uh, they, 18 different researchers went into 18 different houses, and they were prepared for the onslaught of kids that were coming ready for candy. And so what they did was they would open the door, kids would come in, and they would chat with them for a minute or two, and then they would leave them with the bowl of candy and an instruction. And the instruction was to take one piece of candy. And you all know that that research probably failed, right? Every kid in here is like, I would have taken five or six pieces of candy. If it were me, I probably would have taken the bowl. But with half of them, what they did, this is how they did the research, is they left the bowl in front of a mirror so the kids could see themselves as they were taking the candy. And you can imagine... You're seeing your reflection, even if you're in a mask, what happened? The kids, most of the kids, not all, but most of the kids that saw themselves in the mirror followed the instruction and took one piece of candy. And the vast majority, almost all of the kids that didn't have the mirror would take multiple. So what do we learn? Well, we learn that it doesn't matter what age you are, whether you're an adult or a child, when somebody is watching, we tend to adjust our behavior. When somebody is looking at what you and I are choosing to do, we tend to act more righteous or we tend to make better choices. You see, whether or not we like to admit it, we all make decisions based on other people's perceptions of us. We're more likely to make certain decisions based on whether or not someone else is watching. We're more prone to live with the praise of man and mind, as opposed to what Jesus is lifting up here in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, the praise of our Heavenly Father. See, that's exactly the point of this part of the Sermon on the Mount. As we continue moving through this, Jesus is teaching his disciples uh, what it looks like to have a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees and the scribes. Well, what do we mean by righteousness? That's the first question of the morning. And quite simply, it's just ways that we obey God. 
ways that we listen to what he has put in his scriptures for what it means to be man and woman on this earth in relationship with him. So today, that's you know, reading our Bibles and praying. It's thinking about moral and ethical dilemmas in this world and making choices based on uh, the righteousness that God has given to us. Serving. The list really is endless. And Jesus says that if you're going to follow him, if you're going to place your life behind his, that you have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees and scribes. That's been told to us abundantly, but what does that look like in our lives, in our religious lives? And it's kind of hard to like separate these things out, right? Because for the past few chapters, Jesus or verses, Jesus has been talking about uh, moral and ethical choices uh, that we can make um, in our lives. So adultery, whether or not that we are to, to commit those things, lies and oaths uh, and different such choices. And now he is going straight to uh, religious choices that we make. So we're to respond to his kingship. Our life is to be more than just the things that we do, the righteousness that people see, the reading of our Bibles, the serving of people, the ethical and moral questions that we are to ask. What we're going to see today is that Jesus is after our whole lives. He's not just after the actions, but he's after our hearts. Because Jesus is king over all things, a theme we've been uh, proclaiming through this sermon series, but also even today in our worship service, Because Jesus is king, we have to give him our allegiance and we have to let our hearts rest in him and him alone. And when we do that, we'll see, just like the choices in our life, when it comes to our religious practices, we will not strive to live with man's praise in mind, but rather with the praise of our Father So that's what we're after today. We're after looking at how Jesus talks about this and how he lifts it up for us to consider in our private lives and our quote-unquote religious lives because our hearts are fickle. They're easily deceived. I mean, that's Jeremiah says that in chapter 17, that the heart is deceitful above all else, which means that our lives can be blown to and fro without a proper anchor, without a proper connection point. But when we see that we're connected to King Jesus, when we are his followers, like the disciples were here on the mount, that our hearts rest in him, we can begin to respond with a righteousness that looks more Christ-like than it does man-centered. And this is all kingdom living. Throughout the sermon, we're looking at what kingdom living looks like. And here today, I want a couple observations for us. There's a big predicament that we find ourselves in, a better promise, and a beautiful, it says power. I'm going to go between power and position. We'll probably use both words. Jim made me think about that when he was praying, actually, at one point. Power and position. So what's the big predicament? What, what, do, we, what do we find? Well, Jesus does not, he's not slow to, to tell us what's going on. In verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He does not hold back. This is why it's really important that we read through the scriptures and we read through uh, the whole intended scriptures as they've been given to us. If you were to just jump in to Matthew 6 without having read Matthew 5 and 4 and 3 and 2 and 1, you would read this and say, okay, 
I guess I'm not to practice my righteous, my Bible reading, my praying, my serving in front of other people. That can't be what he's saying, is it? It can't be what Jesus is wanting us to do is to hide every uh, sort of righteous living choice that we, that we make behind closed doors. Certainly that isn't what he wants us to do. No, Jesus is dealing beyond the moral and ethical predicaments, the things that we talked about, anger, divorce, adultery, oaths. Uh, he is now moving into this idea of how we live out our righteousness before other people in a way that is self-aggrandizing. So Jesus sends a warning uh, not to let your righteousness be seen before other people. If you go back to Matthew 5, this is actually the last sermon that I preached, uh, which was on being salt and light. This might be a bit confusing. Aren't we to live in a way that people see that we are Christians? We're making good choices. We're praying for people. We're serving our communities, whether it's in Grand Rapids or not even just church, our, our different little neighborhoods that we have. We did a map a couple of weeks ago where we pinpointed all the different places that we work, live, and spend time. Aren't we to live in those places so that people would recognize that we are Christians? Jesus even prays that way. In John 17, he says, Lord, they will know that they are my followers by the way that they love one another. In other words, by the way that people see how we live and that we love one another. We're treating people with kindness. So what do we do with this, this seemingly contradiction? Well, if you were to continue on and read, which of course we have, and we have the scriptures presented for us, it's not that we aren't to practice these things in front of people but instead, when we do things like give to the needy and pray and fast, these religious practices, we do not do them as the hypocrites do, where they're being praised by other people. This is the way that one author kind of sums up this section of the scriptures. He says, Jesus is not condemning here the public practicing of righteous behavior as if only secret anonymous acts can be righteous. Rather, he is warning against a righteous behavior that is a wrong heart motive, the praise of others rather than the praise of God. Once again, we see that righteousness, which is real behavior, is defined as truly righteous only if it is done with a right heart. So Jesus' warning is not strictly about whether we do these things or not because we must. We must have righteous, real behavior, as he says, lived out in this world because the world desperately needs it. It needs it in your workplace. It needs it in your communities. It needs it even in our parking lots. Even in here, we need the righteous behavior, the real behavior lived out for one another. But rather, Jesus is saying that our righteousness points to God and it reveals our heart. It reveals the motivation for why we do things. And so here is the predicament. Why are we motivated to do the things that we do? Why is it that we pray the way that we do? Is it so that God is glorified or that the people with you think, man, that person knows how to pray? 
and both aren't necessarily, it's not necessarily black and white. I mean, there is probably some gray in there, but it's the black and white issue is your heart. Where is your heart? Are you responding from the love that God has given to you, the acceptance that he has had for you as a child of God, and you're responding out of that to praise him with your words and with your actions? Or are you not believing that to be true, and you're responding or reacting rather to the world around you. This is what it means to look like a Christian, and I must do these things so people know what I believe. It's a fine line, but Jesus says this is the predicament that we find ourselves in. The difference between man's praise and God's praise, and we all know that our hearts seek the praise of man. So Jesus puts this in three different categories where we see this in our righteous and religious practices, almsgiving, praying, and fasting. So I just want to spend a minute just to eat, talk, talk on each one of these, but I'm going to just a little bit of an aside here. There's a lot in this passage, and we're not going to cover everything about these three different topics. I'm happy to talk with any of you if you have specific questions afterwards about things that maybe weren't touched on, but there's too much here for us to really dig into every bit of what Jesus has to say, most notably the, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we'll, we'll talk on that here in a minute, but it deserves its own sermon series, let alone its own sermon, and so we'll just be skimming the surface. So Jesus here, the first thing he presents is almsgiving. You know, what does he say? Verses two through four, then when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that you, that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So just a couple of notes here, if you think about uh, trumpet versus secret. So what he's getting at is, uh, it may have been a practice that some people would stand on the corners using actual trumpets, but it's, it's not likely that that's what he was talking about, but rather just the noisy gong of, hey, I am giving, look at me giving, look how great I am, look at the, the finances that I have to provide, look at the needy that I'm caring for. It's that kind of action. I'm being a little bit dramatic so to, get to, to prove the point. But that's what he's speaking against. Almsgiving is not our regular tithe that we give at church. Almsgiving is a very specific gift to the needy. Here is the way that uh, a scholar says what it is. I think this is really helpful for us. In the affluent West, many think of almsgiving or giving as tithing or the weekly offering plate donation that goes to support the pastoral staff, operating expenses, and some missionary efforts. However, the issue addressed here is a more specific kind of giving that was far more common and accepted as essential to personal piety in ancient Judaism and Christianity, giving directly to help the poor and needy. In a time and place with great poverty, subsistence living, like in first century Palestine, and no government assistance, the needs of the needy were met by the community. See, this was baked into how Israel uh, was to worship and respond to God. In Deuteronomy, there is uh, a text that says that they're commanded to give to the poor. This is how you are to respond. Remember, the laws of God reveal the heart of God. And the heart of God is that he cares for needy people and wants his people to care for it. So in this predicament, what do we do? Are we to just, just give cash gifts so nobody can know what we're doing? Are we just to give an online portal so that no one knows? I think the, 
what Jesus is wanting to, to, to lift for the people of the day and the now for us is what is our motivation for why we give? Do we give to the needy because we recognize how needy we are? Do we give to those who have less than us because we have been given more than we deserve? Or do we do it out of an abundance of, well, I need to meet some tax requirements? Or I need to do this because I can get my name on this thing or in this place? Again, a little bit dramatic, a little bit over the top, but do you see the point? Jesus is saying, where is your heart? What is your motivation? Do you recognize how I have provided for you that you might be able to respond and provide for others? See, God is a heavenly father who sees what happens in secret. This is getting at the point of what does it mean uh, that we do these things in secret? That is, he knows all things. While humans look at the outward appearance, God looks into the heart. Thus, based on a belief in God's power and ability, the disciple is free to pursue, pursue virtue apart from the need and the praise and the honor in our society. So we're actually freed to respond and give of ourselves, of our money to those that are needy, just like you and me. Okay, then there's praying. Let's make sure we've got time for this. And there's praying. You know, he goes through and talks about this same idea that we're to not pray as the way that some people do, standing on the corner where people would see them, saying loud, repetitive prayers is uh, one of the ways that you're to think about this. Pointing to themselves, truly I say to you, so he says, for they, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. So standing and praying in the synagogue was actually a normal practice of the day. So don't think it's like someone right now standing up and praying in, in the congregation. That would be a bit strange. But you're in the synagogues when you prayed, you stood. And so this is, that's not to be um, thought of as, as why they are looking to themselves in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who sees in secret. Again, because God knows what's going on. God knows all things. He knows the heart uh, that we are, uh, that we have. And we can pursue prayer with the Lord in private because he sees that and hears that and knows that it's good. So a couple of thoughts here on prayer before we, we move on. Again, this is um, just some, some surface level thoughts because there's a lot more here we could and should talk about at some point. But prayer is the central part of this text. And I think that that is not, that is not a coincidence. Uh, I don't think that they were, when they put this gospel together, that they thought, well, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, maybe we'll just put the Lord's Prayer here and then see what happens. No, it's central because prayer is central in our relationship with the Lord. And it reveals our heart about what we believe to be true in the world. That is a part of what the Lord's Prayer does. It reveals to us, do we pray like this? Do we pray that God's kingdom would come? That it's not about us. It's not about what we are doing. It's not about the needs that we have. But the will of God being executed in this world. And then when we respond, we respond by giving thanks for the daily bread that we have. By forgiving other people. Because we've been forgiven. And by pressing into a relationship that is awaiting the coming kingdom of God. 
by not being led into temptation, by leading righteous lives, that people might know who we are. Is that the way that we pray? This is how Jesus told us to pray. It's how he told his disciples to pray. Pray like this. I've been convicted over the last 10 weeks. I do not pray like this. I pray about myself first. My family is usually in there somewhere towards the top. And then my needs are in there. You know, I could use a little bit extra money this week. I could use this conversation to go really well so that X, Y, and Z thing would happen. I really would love for my neighbor's dogs to be quiet at this hour. Lord, would you make that happen, please? Instead, our prayers should be so focused on what God is doing in his heavenly kingdom and making that kingdom a part of what our lives look like on a daily basis. Is it wrong to pray for some of those things? No, it's not wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong. But again, Jesus is just holding up a mirror here in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's revealing our hearts and saying, what, how are you making choices? Is it out of a man-centered desire or a Lord-praised desire? There's so much more we could say about the Lord's Prayer, but we'll have to leave that for another time. The last one is fasting, which is probably one of the practices that we're least familiar with in our modern day. It's not that maybe you're not familiar with it, but fasting is simply giving up a good thing like food and substance for a better thing, like reading the Lord's, or reading the Word, being in the Lord, praying. It is reminding ourselves of where our actual daily bread, where our need comes from, and it is from God. It's not from the things that we do. It's not from the substance that we eat. It's not from the protein that we get from chicken or beef or any of the vegetables. It's from our relationship in the Lord. He is the water that does not end. He is the bread of life. He is the one that sustains us in all things. And so fasting is a practice of setting aside those daily uh, needs that we have, eating and taking food and substance in, and reminding ourselves of how in the Lord we have everything. There's this song that I love to listen to uh, on my way to church uh, when I'm preaching or on the way back. And it's a song, it, uh, it is titled, uh, Take the World and Give Me Jesus. Take all these things. Take the world, but give me Jesus. And fasting is a practice that reminds us of that truth. You can take everything. As long as you have Jesus, you will be sustained. Okay, so so what? What do we do with these things? What do we do with the predicament? Well, I think there's two, two thoughts here, duty and delight. It's a recognition that our hearts are prone to wander, and so we assess our lives. Jesus is holding up a mirror and saying, how is it that you are living? Are you living out of this choice for men to see and to give you praise and reward, or are you doing it out of the, the reward that you have in me and the praise that I will give you in secret? So Jesus is like a doctor here in this passage, telling us that in our visit that in order to be a healthy person, uh, we'll be less concerned about what men and women think and more concerned with what our Father thinks, the praise that he gives us. Because I have a, like any of you probably, I have a personal temptation to be a people pleaser. And so I am interested in what people think far more than I should be. And Jesus says, hold on to the reward that your Father has, for that will move you to be more in tune with the praise of God. And this is a better promise. So we move on to the second point here in, in the last few minutes that we have, actually. And we have a better promise here in this passage that Jesus outlines for us. And I think this is one of the more interesting parts of this passage, is the way that Jesus talks about rewards. 
It actually made me a little bit squeamish and, and squirmy to think about living with a reward in mind. I don't, don't know why, but maybe it's just a part of my you know, evangelical reformed background that you're not to really think about what you're getting as the, the reward and then that influences you to live. It just made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe I'm alone in that. But here Jesus points out that there's two types of rewards. In fact, he uses two different Greek words to highlight the significance between the two of them. You have one, which is um, a reward that is given to those that are recognized in the moment. So verse 5, we use the prayer as, as a way to look at this. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And this word means a very short and temporary reward. It's one that moves on and is fleeting. It passes just as people pass us by on the sidewalk. Someone sees them praying and they're like, wow, that person prays really great. And then they go into the market and they've completely forgotten about it. That is the reward that they get. Just that simple man-centered affirmation of what they're doing. And yeah, sure, it feels good, but it doesn't last. And all it does is make us want to live for more of that, to seek it out like it's some sort of drug. I need the praise of man. So I need to keep doing these things so that I can get recognized for it. And I got to keep on doing it because as soon as I get recognized for it, it leaves and I feel my self-identity and my worth is stripped, stripped from me. So I need to pray again that way. I need to give away again in that way that I might be recognized. So that's one way. And then the second way that Jesus talks about this is a reward that is from our Father. A reward from the Lord verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who sees, who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And this is a more lasting and enduring reward. It's one that does not go away. It's a reward that cannot be lost. And it's not a reward that we can earn you don't pray to earn this reward. It's a reward that is given freely to us by the work of Jesus on the cross. Completely different motivations for how you get to different rewards. Same word, different way of approaching this. Jesus' message is clear. As his disciples who are striving to respond to the love that they've been given by the Father, were to seek to live according to that right reward. And of course, this isn't just here in Matthew 6. This is something that is teased out in the rest of the New Testament. We got Luke 14. Jesus there is telling us not to only invite people to come to parties that can repay us, but rather to invite people to the different parties and banquets that can't. This is what he says here at the end of that statement. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be blessed by inviting them into your life by giving to them because they can't repay you, because there's no reward you can get from them. And he goes on, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So how do we do this? How do we live amongst messy people's lives, right? Those are messy people. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Those are messy people and hard people to love and to care for and to invite into our lives. How do we do it? Well, it's by looking to the resurrection by looking to the cross, looking at what Jesus has done for us because he has entered in to the messy, crippled, lame, and blind lives that you and I have. He has brought us 
to the table and say, you are in me and I am in you. I love you so much that I would come and enter that messy life that you might have a right relationship with God. That's the way that we're fueled to do this. That's the way that we're able to look beyond ourselves and to press into others' messy lives and to find that reward that God will give us when we do these things. Paul also riffs on this idea in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work as you're working for the Lord. So it's not working for man, it's not a man-centered work, but it's uh, it's a Lord-centered work. And again, there's other places. Acts 20, it's more blessed to give than receive. Matthew 19, where Peter is talking about, hey, you know, we've given up all these different things. Uh, What's in it for us, Lord? I'm going to read this one. I think it's really good. Matthew 19, verse 27. Got to find it here. And then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit at the, his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake. In other words, all of you that have paid the high cost for following Jesus will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. That's the better reward. That's the better promise that we have from Jesus. That by striving to rest our hearts in him, by fixing our eyes on the cross, by remembering the resurrection and what it does for us, we are able to give up those things, to not be so concerned with what man thinks about what we're doing or how we're praying or the religious righteous acts that we have or even the moral ethical choices that we've been talking about. So one final thought as we are wrapping up. So we've got this beautiful power. Really, it's a beautiful position. It's the position of being in Christ. So how do we get that? How do we press against the culture that wants us to curate our own lives, to, to sell ourselves to people in various ways and, and look at the things that we do and the decisions that we make? Well, it's what we just said. It's by putting our eyes on the cross and remembering the joy that comes from that. I'm going to read Hebrews 12. This is how our Savior Jesus, our King, this is how He endured starting in verse 1, chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus kept his eyes on the prize. He knew the reward that would come of sitting at the right hand of God. And because he was able to do that, because he was able to push through the shame and the hurt and the brokenness, we too can count it joy to press on in this manner, to die to ourselves and to seek a righteousness that comes from God. The cross is the fuel and the motivation for us. It's the promise that God gives to us and the position that we have in Christ when we're following Jesus and laying aside what the world thinks about us 
and we're seeking the praise of God. See, Jesus urges his followers here to find their satisfaction and security in God rather than anything else. And that's the challenge. That's the challenge. We recognize that Jesus is king in this beautiful position that we have in Christ. The deepest longings of our lives, they're not things, they're not the praise of man, but it's God himself. The deepest longing we have is to be with him. It's to take the world and give me Jesus. To have Jesus at the center of all that we do. The invitation is to see that you're free from religious practice to earn anything from man around you or from God. And to bow down to God in humble reliance on him. Then we are truly free to give and to pray and and to fast, to practice this life that the Lord has laid out for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. It's challenging in that there is so much here for us to consider, so much for us to ponder on and to think. Help us, Lord, to fight the temptation to, to live a life that is centered around what man would want from us. Whether those are the sort of ethical choices we've talked about or these practices that are meant to be a response, a faithful response to uh, you entering into our lives and, and bringing us into this relationship. In other words, Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus who, though the shame and guilt, the, the, the uh, brokenness that awaited him in his life set his eyes on the cross and lived and endured and died that we might be able to be in this position that we can truly freely live in response and that you might be glorified Lord I pray that you would work this deep into our hearts and to our minds and that it might be reflected in the way that we live I pray this in Jesus name Amen.